Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. This week is our semi-annual deep dive into the economic landscape with a group of experts and commentators that is truly non-pareil. The episode comes at a very timely crossroads. The nation just received overall remarkably strong economic news, outstripping all the predictions of a year ago of where we would be at this juncture. But that news comes with a large asterisk. The American people appear to be wholly unaware of it. In maddeningly large numbers, they see their personal situations as pretty fine, but when it comes to the state of the nation, they believe that not all is well. That contrast has critical implications for the coming presidential election. Also last week, the Federal Reserve decided to keep interest rates locked in place, raising the critical question, are we doing enough to keep a tight leash on inflation? And as always, there are innumerable other variables on the economic landscape. With student loan repayments starting up again, treasury yields on the rise, trillions in federal debt, two ongoing wars that could expand, and the potential resurgence of Donald Trump to the corridors of power, our economic future remains cloudy, even as our economic present is worth writing home about. Lucky for us, we have the returning Talking Feds all-star economic squad here to examine this potpourri of economic issues and concerns. And they are... Dean Baker, a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a think tank that produces economic research on U.S. national affairs that he co-founded in 1999. Dean has authored several economic books, including Rigged, how globalization and the rules of the modern economy were structured to make the rich richer. He blogs at Beat the Press. Welcome back, Dean Baker. Thanks for having me on. Paul Krugman, a New York Times opinion columnist where he's been writing about economics since the year 2000. He is a distinguished professor in the Graduate Center of Economics at the City University of New York and Professor Emeritus at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, where we overlap for like a week and a half. In 2008, Paul won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences for his contributions to new trade theory and new economic geography. He has authored or edited, this is breathtaking, 27 books and more than 200 papers in professional journals. Thanks, as always, for joining Paul Krugman. Hi there. And Stephanie Rule, a senior business analyst at NBC News, and to my mind, the sharpest economics analyst on all of cable TV. She's the host of the 11th Hour on MSNBC, which airs weekdays at 11 p.m. She previously was managing editor and anchor for Bloomberg Television and editor-at-large for Bloomberg News. And before that, she spent 14 years in the finance industry. She is active in women's leadership development, co-chairing Women on Wall Street. A pleasure, as always, to welcome you back to Talking Feds. Thanks for being here, Stephanie Rule. Thanks for having me. Great to see you guys. Thanks to everyone for a, this repeat semi-annual episode. So look, let's begin at the top line of economic news. The U.S. economy 
expanded at a barnstorming annual rate of 4.9% in the third quarter, at the same time as inflation remained stable near the Fed's 2% target. Just how remarkable are those benchmarks? Just in the abstract, how sensational a performance for the economy is that? I'd say it's incredible. I mean, it's a, these are sorts of numbers thrown there the low unemployment rate. If anyone had said this a year and a half ago, that we'd have this sort of growth, we'd have uh, 3.8% unemployment, we'll get another number tomorrow, my guess down, and inflation, to my view, pretty much under control, people would have said, you're, you're just being crazy optimist. And you know, a new number this morning, 4.7% productivity growth for the third quarter. These are hugely erratic, so don't go to town with that. But that's an incredible number. So we're just seeing a lot of really great news that I would have been embarrassed to say these things a year and a half ago because people would just thought it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, a year ago, Bloomberg said there was a 100% likelihood of a recession by now, by October. And here we are, no recession. How did we pull it off? 100% of what it used to be. <laughs> That's so true. But here's the problem. Uh-oh. You're going you're gonna to dump on it before we've even registered it. No. I, I'm not going to dump on anything about the economy because in a vacuum, it's extraordinary. And when you think about where we came from and what most economists predicted, again, tremendous win. Here's the unfortunate disconnect. Talk to people about how they feel about the economy. And this is something I have a lot of sympathy for the administration on. How do you convince people? How do you tell people, don't you remember? It was going to be much worse than this. Don't you remember? Inflation was worse a year and a half ago. All those things are true. But the fact of the matter is, inflation has slowed. But the price of things, the price of the everyday goods you're buying, for the most part, isn't going down. And so people out there... Lots of people don't feel good about the economy. When you go outside tomorrow and you get a, a bagel, when you go to book a flight, when you go to book a hotel, life is still really expensive. And um, unfortunately, people aren't thinking in the holistic sense. They're thinking in the immediate and they're just saying like, damn, my life costs a lot. And that's an unfortunate thing that the administration has to solve for because, I mean, Look at what a great moment this is for labor. Look at the auto workers potentially getting this deal done. Like this is maybe the best moment we've seen for labor in decades. Yet you talk to the average person out there and they're not feeling as good about the economy as the data is. I think you may be giving people a little bit too much credit. There's a fair bit of evidence that it is true that prices are high, but you know wages are way up also. We're no longer in a state where real wages have been doing badly. And there's quite a lot of evidence that people are feeling pretty good about their personal situation. This is not just, you know, the abstract numbers like GDP look good. People asked to assess how are you doing financially are pretty favorable. People are spending. Discretionary spending is is high. The uh, flights are full. Midtown Manhattan is annoyingly full of, of tourists. So there's this one, there's a very strong aspect of I'm okay, but things are lousy. And that's a really, really hard thing to solve. And here's the thing, though. People are out there spending, but while they're spending, they're complaining about the prices, right? One of the things that'll get prices to go down is if people say, I'm not paying 
$20 for that burger, but instead we're still going to that restaurant. The restaurant's full. We're paying that price for the burger and that restaurant's not going to lower their price. So why should they? But people have that yucky sentiment of, I can't believe how much dinner just cost. You know, in terms of how people think versus, you know, what we, the data, hard data, I'll just say, you know, the stuff that the, the statistical agencies give us. One of the things that really got me, because obviously we're all struggling with the same thing, where inflation's down, but people are still complaining, this and that. But I saw the survey, and I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly what the source was, but it was a credible source. I'm not repeating something I got from a guy in a street corner. <laughs> and they asked some question like, is unemployment low or high? Again, that's not the exact wording, but and half the people said unemployment's very high. No, I, I saw that same survey, 60... 60- Roughly half the population thinks that unemployment is near a 50-year high. Why do they think that? And what gets me is this is something they could know, and we have data. Obviously, they have jobs, but people are quitting their jobs. So they quit their jobs, their friends quit their jobs, their relatives. They wouldn't be doing that if they thought it was hard to get jobs. This is what just gets me because, you know, prices, I don't know, my grocery store can do anything. But if people are quitting their jobs with the expectation they'll get another job and they're getting the other job, they must know that it's not hard to get a job. Yesterday, someone who I know who's who's always wants to be just a negative Nancy about the economy, someone without economic experience, sent me this article that WeWork, that WeWork is filing for bankruptcy. Like, can you believe it? And I said, yeah, people are working from home in droves and businesses have adapted. We don't need WeWork anymore. Like, not only was it founded on a hill of nonsense beans by a lunatic founder, put that aside. We don't need the business model anymore because people, many people are collectively working from home. People will will hang on to data or this soundbite that has no reflection on reality. There are two theories here. One of them is that people's inflation horizon is a lot longer than anything that economists look at, that people think about prices relative to what they were three or four years ago. So we look at inflation measures over three months or a year and say inflation is way down, but they say, well, prices are really high compared with four years ago, and so I feel bad. That's that's one story. The other story is that there's all this narrative that people have about that's coming from social media, partisan media, just the... Uh, my own employer seems to be incapable of writing a favorable headline about the economy without a <laughs> but at the end, you know, that says something negative. Those aren't mutually exclusive, but I kind of, I think there is really a significant narrative thing. And I don't know about you guys, but I get correspondence. You know, I get, I'm the king of hate mail, but I get lots of correspondence. <laughs> and uh, it's actually striking how many of the letters are you uh, ivory tower or whatever you, you, you elite. Have you looked at the price of eggs lately? And, yeah, I have looked at the price of eggs. Eggs happens to be one of those swings where the price really has come down a lot. But, uh, you know, it's not simply a slowing rate of inflation, but an actual sharp price decline. But that's not the narrative. I saw that study. A very high percentage of people just believe that unemployment, which is near a 50-year low, is actually uh, near a 50-year high. And it's got a political dimension as well, which is bizarre. So self-identified Republicans are much more likely to believe that than others. And again, going back to Stephanie's point, that's notwithstanding that they would largely say they're doing okay, but their perceptions of how the economy is doing overall is very 
sour in a distorted, I would say even false way, but breaking down around political lines. So it feels like this narrative that we've been talking about forever in the in Trump land. I think that could have to do with, and maybe I'm wrong, and I'd love to know what these two gentlemen think. The idea, the brand that Republicans are better for the economy, yeah. which isn't even true, but is widely believed by lots of people. There are loads of formerly traditional Republicans who are desperately relying on that narrative to be true for lots of apolitical voters who don't pay attention to particular things. But there are re powerful Republicans that desperately need people to believe this. Like, listen, all lawmakers are bad news. They're all self-serving, but it's Republican. You know, none of them do anything that are good. No, no lawmaker is going to help you, but it's Republicans that are good for the economy. So I actually think that there are Republicans who more than any other narrative around policy are desperate to keep this narrative alive, that Democrats just spend way too much and they're lousy for the economy. And it's the Republicans who are fiscally responsible and they need this narrative to be true to all of those voters out there who aren't paying attention to lots of noise, because besides that- And you think it's working? I do, I do, I think it's, uh, not as much as they'd like it to be working, but I yeah. think it's I think it's really important to them. I think it has worked. And, you know, again, there's a lot of polling data that show this. I mean, one of the ones that was really striking to me was that, uh, and again, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact numbers here, but most people thought that Obama raised the budget deficit. And of course, the budget deficit fell hugely under Obama, which, you know, that sort of led me to believe, okay, at least from a political standpoint, there's no reason to worry about the deficit because they're going to think the Democrats made it bigger anyhow. So that really is uh, seriously entrenched. And again, I don't think the deficit is a big deal, but obviously a lot of people do. And you couldn't really ask someone to do more than Obama did in terms of getting it down. And he got zero credit for it. it, it this is just very deeply ingrained. But yeah, again, more generally, when has the economy done well? Well, it did really well in the 1990s. Who was sitting there? Bill Clinton. We had the eight years of Bush where his first uh, four years in office is the first time since the Great Depression. We had no net job gain, four years in office. And then, of course, the next four years, we had a loss. And when did the financial crisis hit? When he was walking out. Yeah, yeah. So... But somehow the Democrats can't handle the economy. The Republicans are the ones that, that know what to do. I have absolutely no idea whether by the time next November rolls around, perceptions will have caught up. But the fact remains that we're experiencing a kind of a, you know, an economic miracle that we've had one quarter's growth. There are bounce quarters all the time. That happens. But what we've seen, which is inflation just falling off a cliff with no price in higher unemployment, no price in terms of slower growth. That's not just incredibly good news. It should really change our narrative about what we think that the last few years were all about. It, it doesn't look like the stories that a lot of people were telling, even to some extent that I partially bought into, were, were right. It's, it's a very different story. I mean, you wrote, Paul, the war on inflation is over. We won at very little cost. So I think it's a paired headline here where it's doing from great to miraculous and people think it's from lousy to abysmal. That's an amazing conjunction, but not, as you say, not to ignore the very first part. And I just wanted, you know, Stephanie, you point out that things that people are buying with the exception of eggs themselves seems expensive, but this is more comprehensive than that. So you would think if Biden would get credit anywhere, it would be in terms of infrastructure and bringing manufacturing jobs back to America, even there, 
he's at lower than 50%. It feels as if maybe it's part of a broader flaw with polling now in general, but there's just a kind of sourness in the electorate that you wonder whether you have to sort of disregard the standard metrics of polling as gauges of what people are really going to do politically. Well, I think something that is unfortunate and must be frustrating for the administration is that infrastructure takes a while, right? I remember Mike Bloomberg said it a long time ago, though lots of lawmakers should vote to pass infrastructure legislation, they don't, because by the time shovels are in the ground and real jobs are created and the bridges are done, that person's out of office and the next person is sitting in office. So one of the problems is that people can look at it as a soundbite. Well, they've spent all this money, but what has it done? And we're not seeing it yet. And you hope for the president that you start to see more of that action within the next 12, 18 months. I mean, you're not going to see huge developments, but some. Well, I just wanted, I mean, I wanted to put it in in context because in the bulk of my commentating life, when I'm a guest with Stephanie, talking about the real stakes of the sort of false narrative that Trump and supporters are propounding, let's just think about it for economics. Let's say that Trump actually wins. What would that basically mean for U.S. economic policy? I think we have a sense of what Biden's economic thumbprint is now. Do we have a sense of what Trump's economic thumbprint, if anything, would be? Look at what the GOP just proposed to tie to Israel funding. Maybe one of the most ridiculous proposals I've seen. The, the new proposal is, if for us to give this money to Israel, we're going to take money from the IRS. And specifically, the place where they want to take it from the IRS is money that is designated to going after the wealthiest tax evaders. So the commissioner of the IRS came out yesterday. It was basically like, are you bleeping kidding me? This will be a loss for us. This will cost the American people money. So what will Trump's economic policies be? Remember the corporate tax cut. The tax cut was so big, it was bigger than most CEOs asked for. Do you remember back then, Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan was like, oh my gosh, we didn't even ask for a cut this big. So most likely, we're going to see him go through extraordinary measures to cut taxes and make things easier for the super wealthy. And maybe the biggest fear is if Trump ends up being Putin-friendly and doesn't do all the extraordinary things that Biden has done to keep NATO together and cohesive, if Putin advances and we're not supporting Ukraine, it will cost us so much more money and resources than what we're doing now. I was just going to say, the one proposal uh, Trump's put on the table, he wants a 10% tariff on all imports. So I, I not, don't know whether it means a 10% additional tariff. I don't know if he knows or, you know, that everything will be taxed at least 10%. That would be less drastic because we already do have tariffs and a number of things, certainly against China. But that's a huge tax on middle-income people. So he's going to have a huge tax increase on middle-income people, and lower income too, I should say, and then offset it with tax cuts for corporations. Uh, I don't know. That's like the most classic Trump thing ever that, that he'll say to Trump rally as everyone's going, yeah, let's get that. Let, let's just make it all in the USA, ignoring everything everyone's wearing and everything that they bought. Like, it's just absurd. It's totally disconnected from reality. 
Let me pivot because of what you brought up, Stephanie. New York Times has a big piece about the economic effects that we're now dealing unusually with two major regional wars, each of which has the potential for breaking wider. So the New York Times has, you know, a pretty alarmist headline about the fragile world economy and uh, the way the Middle East war could threaten it. How big a concern should the two wars be, again, in economic terms? What would be the impact of the global instability, even if it worsens, on the domestic economic landscape? I mean, the Israel-Gaza thing is absolutely you know, horrifying It's uh, at, at many levels. I cannot convince myself that the economic stakes of that one are all that large. Yeah. It's unlikely to provoke anything like the 73 Arab oil embargo. And even if it did, the world is a lot less dependent on Middle Eastern oil than it was then. So that one doesn't worry me so much. The Russia-Ukraine thing, the economic consequences have mostly already happened. Cut off of natural gas supply to Europe, in which they've weathered. It was ugly, but they, they've done amazingly well at, in the end at coping with it. Food price is one of the reasons that most grocery prices are up is that we're ha having a, uh, a brutal war in one of the world's great bread baskets. And so those are the ones. The, the war that isn't happening is the one that terrifies me, which is Taiwan. If that one happens, then we're talking about an absolutely strategic center. Many of the world's semiconductors, which are in turn crucial to everything, you know, that that one would be a nightmare. But of, this seems like kind of a late date to be worrying about the economic impact of the wars we currently have. Yeah, I'd be inclined to agree with that. Uh, wheat prices are actually lower than they were before the invasion. So it's kind of striking that however much more we might be paying for our bread, it's not because we're paying a lot for the wheat. And obviously, Israel, Gaza, I mean, uh, you can't look at that and not think it's an absolutely horrible, horrible situation. But the, the economic impact Again, we could all envision scenarios, you know, Paul, you're suggesting that, you know, well, you're suggesting it won't happen. But I mean, obviously, if Mideast oil did get pulled offline, that would have a substantial impact, less than embargo in 73, 74. But yeah, it would still have an impact. But uh, my best guess, not based on any sort of expertise, is we won't see that. The thing that is worth remembering is that, you know, so far, the U.S., uh, we're spending money. The U.S. economy is huge relative to the economies of any of the combatants here. It's not really all that much money. And by the way, one of those things, talking about people not getting credit, in financial terms, uh, the Europeans have actually stepped up to the plate. They're actually supplying uh, more money to Ukraine than we are. So uh, the weapons are mostly coming from us. And then there's a whole other issue there about production of military hardware. But this is a case where you know, this is just... Lots and lots of things to worry about there, but I was a little surprised to see people, maybe I guess it's an inevitable headline, but that's not the top of my list here. What are we going to do? A war is going on. In my opinion, this isn't discretionary spending. Like, this is what we need to do. I don't think it's something to debate about. 
It is also important, you know, this is one of the things I've harangued on endlessly, pretty much empty to the yelling to the wind. But <laughs> if, if you put this in some context, you know, again, I don't know where we stand and how much money we've given to Ukraine, somewhere around 60, 70, 80 billion. But isn't it well under 1% of GDP or something? As you, yeah. It's way under. It's about two tenths, three tenths of a percent of GDP. So again, people should totally argue on the merits, you know, so I don't mean to say, oh, don't argue about the merits, you know, I mean, I think we should do it, but but that that aside, no one cares. But it's important to understand the idea that somehow we aren't doing something here, we don't have health care, we don't have child care, because we gave that that is absurd. Yeah. So we should argue for health care, argue for child care, whatever we're giving to Ukraine really is a side to this is a general lesson that you guys, in fact, have imparted to me in previous discussions. There's just a propensity, I think, for people to take any story that's big and translate into economic terms that might, in fact, make no sense against the sort of behemoth of the U.S. economy. That's a kind of Dean Baker special. <laughs> Don't trust any newspaper article that doesn't give you the denominator. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. No one else hears that, though. Yeah. Actually, so this is a total audible, but I'd like to take two minutes anyway, because we've talked about the horrific consequences of the Gaza war. And and I wonder if, if you have an opinion here. One thing you do here is that for Israel, 330,000 people in the prime of their life being called up in, as reservists and the, a possible extended war, not to mention all the costs of the actual fighting, is really a danger of a serious drag on what's been a robust economy. Can I just take a, a quick departure from the U.S. shores to ask if you think that that's a serious problem here? Well, I mean, when you think about 330,000 people basically walking away from their jobs and going to be enlisted, I mean... On one hand, it's just this extraordinary show of force in terms of patriotism, but it is going to have a crippling effect on their economy. I mean, even like their schools in the last week, they're trying to figure this out, like, how are we going to patchwork this together? But Israel is a very small country, and to have a huge portion of the population now temporarily or indefinitely out of the workforce, you're going to have an impact. It's a World War II type mobilization. And, and, you know, if they sustain that for any substantial period, that they are taking a huge economic hit from that. I actually was doing a little bit of homework on this. And, they, you know, we talk about Israel and it's a robust economy. Obviously, they're you know, for the region, they do very well. But there's a little bit of a legend about Israel. I mean, Israel has this very, very vibrant tech sector, you know, startup nation. And we talk about Israel as having this incredible tech boom. But the broader economy has not done as well as people imagine. You've got these stories that say a fair bit of, well, given that we're the startup nation, why is our productivity growth so disappointing? Why can't young couples buy a home? Well, there's that, too. There's a specific, But that's, that's been true as long as I've been going there. But it's just in general. You know, they, Israel has had sort of all through this tech boom, they've sort of had under 2% annual productivity growth, which is not spectacular for a country why is that, that is... It's complicated, but I guess it's basically saying the, the economy is a lot more than just the tech sector. And what's interesting is that's not even taking into account. You know, one of the things we don't talk about very much is that the ultra-religious in Israel are 
sort of not in the workforce. Yeah, they're an economic drag. And I've also heard, Stephanie, I don't know if it's true, but it's such a small country that a certain element of corruption and imbalance, just a very, it's an oligarchy that handles all the IT industry. And that itself in a small country can lead to real distortions that that are a drag on growth. I don't know if it's true, but it's one of the, the theories you hear bandied about. Modern societies have enormous ability to mobilize and be resilient. Again, we talk about World War II level mobilization. Well, you know, we did that. And uh, all of the combatants in World War II managed to spend 40, 50 percent of GDP on the military year after year. So presumably they will survive, at least in terms of the economic impact. But it is going to be very serious. Okay, so shifting back to the domestic sector and a sort of more a generalized question about these factors that we're just talking about that people proffer as having a big economic impact, but maybe ignorantly or not really understanding. Just as I was preparing for this episode, I was really struck with the sort of potpourri factors that people out there are pointing to as trouble on the horizon. And I just wanted to put them out there in a list and ask if any of them, you know, has purchased with you or you think which on the list is not like the others, if any. The student loan repayments, the possible government shutdown, the concern with the workforce shortage as a result of the aging of baby boomers, soaring bond yields, the UAW strike now resolved, that the Barbie film and Taylor Swift no longer pumping up the economy and driving American prosperity. Anything worth paying close attention to there. I don't mean to be too dismissive, but it strikes me as a list not prepared by people of economic sophistication. I wonder what people of economic sophistication make of the the items on it. Let me take the student loan debt repayments yeah. just so I could easily dismiss this. I've been seeing these stories like, oh, my God, people are going to have to re- start repaying student loans. Could be a big hit. The, the New York Fed, I was very happy to see this. They did a little study looking at consumers' expectations, part of the regular surveys, and they asked uh, people, are you going to have to start repaying their loans? How's that going to affect your, your spending? And it turned out almost zero. The number of people, first off, it's overestimated because a lot of people were paying their private loans that they, didn't, they never had moratorium. But the other thing is that you have a wide range of programs, and Biden doesn't get credit for this, that he made the income-driven repayment plan much more generous. So, you know, I don't know how many times, I, I suppose it's usually on Twitter, someone says, oh, I work at Starbucks and I can't afford it. Well, you shouldn't have to pay anything. It really is a very generous program. So long and short, the New York Feds put the hit to consumption at less than one-tenth of 1% of GDP. And that looks to me right. Again, we don't know the exact number, but it's it's that is not one we have to worry about. I agree with that. And I think it gets overplayed. Like Whether or not we should have student debt forgiveness is a debate that you can put over here in this category for another time. But this notion that like it's going to be crippling to the economy when people have to start paying back their student loans, I don't know why that would be. Before COVID, they were paying their student loans. Unemployment is where it is. It is exceptionally low. Wages are up. Why would we think that repaying student loans was going to just have this tremendous blow? Like, I don't even understand the math behind it. Yeah. And, of course, we can pass a special act of Congress to force Taylor Swift to keep touring. So that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you think we need a law for that? I don't know. I, don't I know, didn't think she could get any higher. Let me be clear. I don't think she's ever going to stop touring. I just went to her movie 
and all the movie is is the concert, but you're <laughs> sitting in a movie theater. There's not even like behind the scenes scenes. There's not like behind the stage. There, what's happening? There's no. There's not even a dialogue. Yeah, and your point. You spend yeah. all that money to go to the concert, and now you just go to the theater. And they hustle you into buying the Taylor Swift commemorative <laughs> jumbo popcorn and jumbo drink. It's like the most brilliant hustle ever. She's not stopping touring. She's brilliant. Sad to say, we really do need a denominator here. We need a yeah. bigger denominator. D despite the incredible size and success, and I wish her all the best, it's really just not a big deal. Even Taylor. Even Taylor Swift. The one that's in there that worries me, but it's a complicated worries because I basically don't think I understand it, is the bond yields. Mm -hmm. Bond yields are extremely high. I don't at least think that I fully understand why. And they so far haven't dented the economy. And there's the one story is that we've just discovered that our star is a lot higher than we thought it was. And so interest rates are going to stay high permanently, but the economy will cope. The other is that something is going to break and that we're just looking at lags. And I have absolutely no idea which of those is the right story. And so the bond yields does make me nervous because this is we're in so many uncharted territories that I don't know where, you know, but but this is again uncharted territory. I don't begin to understand it, but I think it's already as I am, you know, affecting people's portfolios. Yeah, I, I was gonna pick that one on your list too as the one that bothers me. And I think there are concrete things. Again, could I ask you, Dean, lay out what we're talking about. Yeah, so, so we saw this huge jump in long-term rates, first and foremost, long-term bonds. They've been around three, six, three, seven. Someone, you know, again, they obviously jump around day to day. And they just jumped up to about 5%. They peaked at 5%. It was it two weeks ago. They're down a little bit. I think we're at a little over four, six now. Uh, you know, we've gotten some good news. But anyhow, that is a big jump. And to my view, it has had an impact. Now, again, I'm probably with Paul, Stephanie, and well, she'll speak for herself. But I thought rates would have much more impact on the economy. It hasn't. You know, obviously, good growth, low unemployment, nothing to complain about. But on the other hand, there are concrete effects here. So the housing market, we're still seeing construction. New starts are down, but we're still seeing very good construction. Long story there, but uh, that was the supply chain problems. But existing home sales are down almost 40%. And people talk about this as a lock-in effect. You have all these people that have a 3% mortgage. They might like to move, but if they move somewhere, they know they're going to get a 7 or even we had mortgage rates. That, I think they hit 8% last week. So that's a real disincentive to move. And that's not something we need for the macro economy. But this is, I had an exchange with someone, what are things that aren't measured in GDP? Well, I'd like to live over there, but I'm living over here. Well, that's not measured in GDP, but I'm not living where I want to, you know, so I'm in the wrong city or I have a big house, I'm in a small, whatever it might be. So that's a real negative, a real unfortunate part. The other aspects, I do think we are seeing some of the classic kind of crowding out of investment, not so much that's hurting the economy in the short term, but there's stories, again, some might have good data on this, that you have like innovative firms can't get capital. So, you know, the uh, venture capital, that's really dwindled. And also, I just saw, and again, how much this had to do with the interest rates, I can't say, but this Danish firm that's a world leader in building offshore windmills, they just canceled two big projects. Now, there are lots of things there, but interest rates were a factor. 
So I worry that we are going to see a price. And there is also an issue of financial fragility, you know, more of the Silicon Valley bank type thing. I'm not predicting that, but obviously when you have a lot of people, a lot of banks where they've made commitments, they're holding long-term debt that's lost 10, 15% of its value. Probably there are other institutions that are, we'll just say vulnerable. Again, will they collapse? Will that be a big thing? My guess, no, but it is something that is worth worrying about. But Dean, don't you find frustrating like this housing argument that yes, it is given where rates are, there's tons of people that want to buy a home. It's too expensive to do so. But go back in time a year ago, everybody was screaming and yelling that they couldn't buy a home because prices were through the roof and every house was getting bid up because rates were so low, right? And you had private equity firms buying up swaths of home because rates were so low. So it's kind of like the media is so determined to write scaremongering stories that it was like, now it's like, oh my gosh, you want to sell your home and there's just no buyers out there because nobody can afford these rates. And six months ago, it was, you want to buy a home and you can't do it because rates are so low, everybody's bidding them up. So it's like, which one do you want? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's striking, and uh, you know, the New York Times said the exact opposite. I got really pissed at them and they were trying to defend what they were saying because they had some survey. I go by, we have data from the Census Bureau, which I tend to trust. There was actually a big increase in homeownership among young people from 2019 to 2022, also for Blacks, also for Hispanics, people with income below the median. Um, all that's right in the census data. Now, that's since gone a little bit the other way in the last couple quarters, last two or three quarters. But we actually had a good story in the housing market. So I don't want to exaggerate this, but still, you do have a lot of people that would be looking to move. And, you know, again, so just, you know, for saying, what am I worried about? Well, I'd love to see the mortgage rate fall back from, you know, whatever, seven and a half percent, wherever we are today, to something like five and a half. I mean, it's not going to get back to three. And I wouldn't want the economic environment where it would get back to three, because that probably mean we're in another recession. But if you could knock that down, say a point and a half, two points, I think that'd be a great thing. Mm-hmm. Probably worth saying, and this is not so much worries me about the economy as that, if you ask why did rates go up so much, we don't have very good stories about that. And they, it, the Fed has a model of the term premium, which uh, is the, supposedly the part that is not expectations about future Fed policy, but is in fact some kind of you know risk something rather. And their model says that most of the rise is a rise in the term premium. But I have actually spent a couple of totally unproductive hours reading through that model. And I don't understand a damn thing. And so I, I think at some level, we don't know what what the hell is going on here. I think that's the third time this episode that Paul Krugman has said he doesn't understand it. And so. if he doesn't understand it, Nobody. there's no hope exactly. for the rest of us. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. My name is Malita Picasso, and I'm a staff attorney at the ACLU's LGBTQ and HIV project, where we work to defend trans people's safety, dignity, and health care across the country. This includes litigation to protect trans youth in Arkansas, Texas, and other states trying to ban their access to life-saving health care. The onslaught of anti-trans bills pushed 
through state legislatures throughout the nation is truly unprecedented and directly harms a community that already experiences high rates of violence, harassment, and discrimination. As we track and fight these bills, we need your support. Help us build communities where trans youth feel loved and supported. Visit aclu.org slash LGBTQ to learn more and get involved. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we pop into the beer aisle for a closer look at the two main types of beers, ales versus lagers. And to help separate lagers from ales, It first comes down to one thing, fermentation. That's the process where the yeast does its magic to give the beer its alcohol content and carbonation. Now, ales are fermented with top fermenting yeast at warm temperatures, somewhere between 60 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas lagers are fermented with bottom fermenting yeast at colder temperatures, between 35 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Because of their warm fermentations, Ales can generally ferment and age in a relatively short period of time, three to five weeks. Lagers can take longer, up to six to eight weeks. The difference in temperatures and time means this. The quicker fermentation in ales, including stouts, hefeweizens, pale ales, and IPAs, creates a fruitier, spicier flavor that's crisp and refreshing. At Total Wine & More, we have over 1,100 ales, so you can explore all you want. Lagers, including Hellas, Pilsners, have a smoother, richer, more mellow, and robust flavor than ales, thanks to their longer fermentation time. We can thank the Bavarian brewers from the Middle Ages for discovering the benefits of longer fermentation after storing their brews in ice caves during the winter. In fact, lager in German means to store, which adds up since lager beer was brewed, covered, and stored with ice harvested from nearby lakes. At Total Wine & More, we have an ice cave of our own filled with a huge selection of ales and lagers from around the world. Just remember the next time you enjoy one, give a little cheers to fermentation. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. I like to spend, in each of these episodes, to spend a little time focusing on longer-term factors for the economy, but more broadly, American society. And I wanted to talk about AI because you're part of a burgeoning debate about what will be the impact of artificial intelligence on on the economic landscape. So I, I just wanted to canvas different views here. Do you see it as contributing to overall wealth generation or since it'll lead to a reduction in available jobs, will it not? I know we're in a little bit of a murky, very hard to see future, but I wonder if you're bullish or bearish on you know the impact for uh, the kitchen table economy of the burgeoning AI. I've always been a skeptic of all the techno optimists. You know, I always yeah. thought they were, you know, that's a, boy, if that's not a term, it should be. Can we trade? <laughs> yeah, I assume it is. I, yeah. I, I don't think I can take credit for it. But anyhow, 
I just see AI as being qualitatively different, that you can have all these innovations and ways things are done that just totally transform them. I, I, I mean, I got a big kick out of it. I was writing a paper and I had to put in a reference section. So I just got to check GPT and said, hey, give me references for whatever it was. Bingo, two seconds. Obviously, I had to edit it, but you know, I mean, not that it would take me that long to have done it myself, but you know, it, it was pretty nice just to have it done for you like that. But that's just the beginning. I mean, you think of things like, you know, you could do diagnosis, and I've seen some studies on this that you, you feed in someone's blood pressure, the various things, and, and you already have AI that could do that better than your average doctor. So, what I really like about it is there's, I think, tremendous potential in terms of efficiencies, but also. This is not tech that is any way skills biased, that I think if anything, AI is likely to have a bigger impact on the most skilled professions, doctors, lawyers, other very skilled, highly paid professions, which I think is great because it's equalizing rather than what we think of as automation, where you know we have robots instead of people on an assembly line, where it's getting rid of what used to be high-paying jobs and now they're low-paying jobs so they don't exist at all. So I'm I'm a big optimist on it. I'm actually going to join in that. The diss on what we're calling AI is that it's not really intelligence, that it's actually just souped up autocorrect. But a lot of human jobs are just souped up autocorrect, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot of what people do is, is and, and those tend, in many cases, they are well-paid, education-intensive jobs. And so we get productivity growth. And it is, again, it's anti, I, I kind of hate the skill bias thing, because I actually think that the that a lot of the plumbers in some ways have a lot of skills that I sure don't have. But it is anti, certainly the sort of credentialized higher education skills uh, biased, and that's good. I doubt that it's going to lead to mass unemployment. That, that has never happened before from technological progress. And it is going to, coupled with other things that are happening, tight labor market, what looks like possibly a union revival, we're probably heading for a somewhat more equal society. So eventually robot Arnold Schwarzenegger comes and kills all of us. But aside from that, it's, it, it's looking pretty good. You've suggested in particular, Paul, that the technology boost may eliminate concerns about public debt levels. Can you explain what you mean there? So, yeah, we just did an event actually at the GC where I, where I teach uh, and uh, despite much cautioning of speakers <laughs> to try and actually speak in English, one of the big items on the slides was R greater than G. Death sustainability depends a lot on the comparison between interest rates and the economy's growth rate. And interest rates are up and you start to say, well, are, you, are we starting to get worried about debt sustainability? But there's at least hints, you know, that's being mentioned, the productivity numbers, which are very noisy, but there are hints that we're actually seeing a productivity boom, which means a faster growth in the economy, which means that actually maybe debt won't be that hard to deal with. We have never paid off massive debt. We never paid off the debt from World War II. We just grew out of it. And the chances that we can grow out of whatever, or at least that we don't have to be worried, those have gone up because I think estimates of, of potential economic growth over the next 10 years are probably substantially too low right now. Mm -hmm. that we, if we can even just have something like we had a kind of IT-led productivity boom between 95 and 2005, I don't see any reason why we can't be having something like that again. So I would agree with everything they said. My big concern is lack of regulation around it and the people developing it. Just last week at a conference here in New York, I interviewed sort of one of the most preeminent voices, strategists in the world of AI. 
And I was so gutted by how disconnected he was from reality and just sort of like the impact on people and lack of human connection and what that does. And my worry is that we've got no regulation. And even when Congress holds hearings and brings people in to come talk about it, they bring in one tiny voice from the world of academia and everyone else is a massive business stakeholder in the world of AI. So my AI concerns are around how things are programmed and what the goals are. But as far as like the technology and what it could do to democratize education, healthcare, so many things, I'm thrilled about it. So I totally agree with Stephanie, but again, this implies Biden deserves credit because he just came out this week with uh, executive orders on regulating AI. Now, I've not read through it. I've read other people write about it. They're serious. I'll just say that. Are they perfect? I'm sure not. But he's out there putting something on the table, which was, to my view, a really great thing. A hundred percent. If you think back, it was really when I think back to sort of the Obama administration, all of those social media giants It's as though the White House front door was open and Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg could cartwheel in, right? Those are the days when we were like, what is Sheryl going to be? Treasury secretary, president, or God? (laughs) The worship of that industry with no one in power having any concerns of the impact of those companies. I absolutely agree. I think it was really, though I don't know the details on it yet, the fact that Washington at least is appearing to take AI much more seriously than we have at all around social media is encouraging. All right, teeny little note on the uh, autocorrect most jobs. It's already the case, even the primitive AI can score the 75th percentile on the bar exam. (laughs) Let's close with your thoughts about a topic. You know, I think all three of you, but certainly Dean and Paul have made a signature concern of your career, namely inequality, completely separate from how the economy as a whole is doing the disparate results for rich and poor, and especially for very rich and very poor, and especially, especially for very, very rich. How are we doing as a country in the last several years? Where do you see that part of economic policy and just life going in the United States? Well, we've made great progress in the last few years. Again, this is a problem that we've had for the last half century, so you don't get rid of half a century of problems in three years. But Things are going very much in the right direction for now. So the low unemployment's had you know this tremendous effect in boosting wages at the bottom. Great work from Ren Dubey, uh, David Otter, and uh, I'm sorry I can't remember the first name of the person who grew the third author. I'm sorry on that, but uh, they've definitely benefited from the tight labor market. And then this revitalization of the union movement has just you know, we saw the UAW get great pay increases. Apparently, Toyota's looking out of match them exactly, but they have to pay their workers more. They're now trying to organize Tesla. Good luck with that. I mean, <laughs> seriously, good luck with that. I mean, it will be a hard, hard effort. Yeah. And of course, we had the UPS strike and uh, no, no strike and settlement. And great. You know, they have to go and strike that great settlement. So a lot of things going in the right direction. We have a long, long, long way to go. But that this has just been great to see. Yeah. And just to say something about one of the lessons I learned along the line is uh, the the decline of labor, the decline of unions in America was you know, not ordained by technology and globalization. It had a lot to do with the political environment, and it's particularly uh, starting with PATCO and Reagan, they, they this political hostility to organized labor and labor in general. And now, well, we just had, for the first time in history, the president of the United States joining a picket line 
that's a pretty powerful signal. And, uh, and then we have this UAW victory. Lots of things can happen. The world two years from now could be a really terrible place in a lot of ways. But right now, there's a lot of good news on this front. You wrote an op-ed actually in the Times recently about how the UAW uh, resolution could point the way toward shared prosperity. Ms. Rule, last word to you on this? Listen, I think we're making progress. I mean, even the fact that we're addressing and putting actual budget dollars behind making affordable childcare in this country is tremendous. Like, I will always say the thing that worries me most or that I wish we would address in a more impactful way is education in this country, right? If we had stronger education, better primary education for all Americans, right, the greatest chance of economic mobility, in my opinion, is through education, which then translates to opportunity. I do think we're in a better situation than we were even a few years ago. Are the super rich getting even super richer? They are, but that's a global thing. It's not domestic. And I think we're doing things to address it. I do. Nothing is perfect. And uh, people who are absolutists, who demand more, I think they should give Joe Biden a lot more credit for what he's done because those who say, I can't believe he hasn't done enough, like when I hear people, you know, go after him that like student debt hasn't been completely absolved, like he hasn't stood up to what he promised to do, he's done a whole hell of a lot. And if what he do has done isn't enough, what do you think you're going to get if you elect a Republican? None. Much of the things that you like that he's done will go away and worse. And uh, so I think we're making progress. We are out of time in what's been another great and illuminating discussion of the economic landscape. Thank you very much to Stephanie, Paul, and Dean, and thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts, and please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content, as well as daily explanations by me of important developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, Joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether they're for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate Producer Catherine Devine. Sound engineering by Matt McCardle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. And production assistance by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. Our endless gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.